Good morning and welcome to Rising. Happy Friday the 13th to all of you out there celebrating. I'm Jessica Burbank and I'm happy to be here with Sir Michael Singleton who's filling in for Amber Athey. Good morning, hey, Sir Mike. I'm doing well. I mean, it's great to be with you, all things considered. I mean, I think the world is on fire right now. Maybe that's an understatement, right? What could you possibly be talking about? We've got a lot to get into. <laughs> uh, why don't you start us off? Well, Jessica, we've got some breaking news out of the Middle East. Israel has ordered 1.1 million civilians 24 hours to evacuate out of northern Gaza after issuing a blanket emergency evacuation order. However, the United Nations warned today that trying to move that many people within a 24-hour deadline would be disastrous. In an interview with CNN, White House spokesperson John Kirby said, obviously, the more time that people have, the better. He continued, obviously, we don't want to see any civilians hurt. The region has been decimated by Israeli airstrikes in the days following Hamas's attacks, leaving some 300,000 people homeless. AP reports the evacuation could signal a coming ground offensive in the region. An IDF spokesman broke down the details of the order on CNN this morning. Let's watch. What I'm trying to understand is, is there a window of safety, right? The UN has said 24 hours, for example. Is there a window of safety? when this evacuation of a million people can happen. That, that the, the evacuation takes place immediately. Um, the window of, of the 24 hours that we're talking about is, a, is the highly, highly recommendation, but it could go on for, beyond that. Okay. But I would say the instruction is, is get up and get out of the north of Gaza and Gaza City and move to, move to the south. And just to be clear, though, move to the south, but there is still no crossing out of Gaza for them. I'm, yeah, I, we, we're directing them exactly where we, we expect them not to be, where people, in order to, to safeguard their own lives, should move from. Now, we've also got some footage of that spokesman's response to claims by Human Rights Watch that Israel is using white phosphorus in its airstrikes, putting civilians at risk of serious and long-term injuries. Per the RHW, white phosphorus causes excruciating burns and is used in populated areas is a war crime. Is the IDF using, has no, the IDF I, used white phosphorus, Colonel? Categorically, no. Meanwhile, here in the States, the Biden administration has blasted Democratic lawmakers calling for a ceasefire in the Middle East as repugnant. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre told reporters, quote, our condemnation belongs squarely with terrorists who have brutally murdered, raped, kidnapped hundreds of Israelis. Uh, there can be no equivocation about that. There are not two sides here. There are not two sides. One congressional aide told the Middle East Eye, quote, it's pretty obvious at this point that the White House doesn't care how many Palestinians die, civilians or otherwise. So I think this is a, a time where a lot of people haven't been paying attention to this international conflict. And now a lot of Americans feel that they need to make up their mind about morally where they align. And many people have posted, many celebrities, many prominent members of American media have said that they stand with Israel following a lot of reports of the brutal attack of, of Hamas uh, in Gaza. And following that, there have been subsequent reports that a lot of the, the really brutal uh, reports of, of babies being beheaded were not founded in, in evidence. And Joe Biden himself said he had seen confirmation, photographic evidence of this, and then subsequently said he had not. 
And this isn't the first time that there's been misinformation in a time of war or conflict. And I think now American people have been made aware very clearly that from the IDF themselves, they are promising to commit war crimes. They're asking for 1.1 million people. Uh, the population of Gaza is near the size of Manhattan to relocate within 24 hours with the routes being blocked, many reports say. Uh, the use of white phosphorus, also a war crime. And so now I think it's time for the American people to ask themselves if they want US dollars and US weapons to support war crimes being committed. It's time, I think, for a lot of people in the United States to really make up their minds about what they want to be told when the United States is involved in a foreign conflict. Why has this not been in the news for the duration of the US funding the Israeli military? And also, why is it the case that there seems to be more overwhelming support for Israel in the US media than in Israel itself? Why is there more support in media in the United States than in the allied country we are fighting with? In Israel, people are extremely critical of what their government is doing. You have four in five Israelis saying that they blame Netanyahu's administration for the attack of Hamas on the Israeli people. And so I think it's a, a dangerous time whenever we have misinformation at war and American people are just struggling to make their minds up about what's happening. Yeah, well, I mean, look, let me just address something that you said. You stated uh, war crimes in terms of the usage of white phosphorus, which we have not been able to validate uh, those claims. It is not illegal to use white phosphorus um, in a military conflict, according to the Conventional uh, Weapons Act. That, that is per permissible. So if they were to use it, although Israel has stated that they have not, and in fact, they began to phase out the usage, usage of white phosphorus all the way back since uh, 2013. So I'm going to err on the side of caution here before making a blanket statement in terms of whether or not it was used, but I want to be clear for the audience's sake, it is not illegal in terms of military conflict to use it. They're not breaking any type of uh, military agreements or international laws that govern uh, the way countries conduct themselves. With, with that clear, said, I mean, I, I, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jess, go ahead. Used against civilians is when it is a war Well, crime. they're not using it against civilians. Civilians happen to be where they're attacking uh, Hamas, and Hamas does this strategically. We know this very well. The United States, we've combated Hamas, um, ISIS, and a bunch of other terrorist groups, and often they will find themselves among civilians so that they can paint the image that the U.S. or the West, or in this case, Israel, is attacking civilians. No, that's not what Israel is doing, and it's not what the United States has done in the past. They just happen to bury themselves with civilians. But it would be a war crime if they phosphorus in that case. No, it would not be a war crime because Israel, again, isn't attacking civilians. They're attacking Hamas, which, again, happens to bury themselves in areas where they know are heavily populated with civilians. I mean, this is kind of common. I'm not sure what's complicated about that. What's complicated about it is that there's a lot of military technology that Israel has that would allow them to conduct precision drone strikes. They don't have to use white phosphorus in areas where there are but civilians. But we don't know if they are, though, Jess. We, we haven't been able to prove if they are, though. You're just making a blanket statement as if it's fact. Yes. They said categorically no. We do know that if they were using white phosphorus, which there are reports that they are, that that would be a war crime, given that reports they're using Reports that have not been civilians. validated, not by even the United States intelligence agency. So are you now believing Hamas? Because they're the ones who are saying that this occurred. 
if they are using white phosphorus in Israel and civilians are burned by that white phosphorus, that is a war crime. Yeah, but, but Jess, but, but where are you getting this information that they're using it as if we know that to be true? It is alleged. We haven't validated this. They're just spreading propaganda, essentially. Right now on the fact that if they are using white phosphorus, that that would be a war crime. You're saying it would not be a war crime, but if civilians are burned by the white phosphorus, then it is a war crime. Civilians are killed, unfortunately, in combat all the time. Ask anybody who's ever fought in a war. I know a ton of them. That is just a part of war. It's an ugly part of war, but it is a part of war. And so to pretend that somehow Israel is doing something that is, un that is unique is a bit absurd to me. Anytime a country is in conflict with another country or a radical extremist group, there is a likelihood that civilians will be killed. With that said, Hamas also killed civilians. A lot of Israelis have died. Americans have died. So I would hope, Jess, you would have this same angst and ire against Hamas that you appear to be having against Israel. I am on the side of peace. And I think anyone who's on the side of but peace. What does that mean? That's a, come on, that's a ridiculous blanket statement. Say, you're on the you side of peace. Talk, what does that mean? Tell you. What does there's that not mean? A fight between us, Sir Michael. What I'm saying is right now, we know there's clear reports, and this is the story we're covering now, is that 1.1 million people in Gaza have been asked to relocate. We know what will happen if they do not relocate. The IDF has made that very clear. It is impossible to have 1.1 million people relocate within 24 hours. That's why the United Nations is calling what is happening a war crime. To withhold food and electricity from a population of people is also a war crime. What is happening in Gaza right now is the military of Israel exerting their strength on a population of people who have no military. That is why it is a war crime. That is why today, when we cover this story, we need to ask the Biden administration, if they seriously support Gaza war crimes being committed by Israel, who they say is our ally and we stand with Israel no matter what. I think the American people are on the side of peace and war crimes not being committed against innocent civilians. I think civilians. the American people are on the side of a country that has been attacked by a radical Islamic group that, that they didn't call for. And this extremist group is now finding itself in the midst of civilians to do the very type of propaganda that you're spreading to our audience right now, which is to say it's war crimes against civilians, just instead of saying, well, wait a minute here, why is Hamas going to heavily populated, dense areas where they know innocent civilians are? Maybe it's because they want Israel to fight them there so that said civilians can be killed in the process. I mean, that's not an irrational assumption uh, to make. What we have going on in Israel and Palestine right now is not a conflict of a few days that began at the beginning of a terrorist attack. We had Netanyahu explicitly decide to prop up Hamas in this war. That is why four in five Jewish Israeli citizens blame the Netanyahu administration for the attack of Hamas. What we have going on here is a much more complicated geopolitical conflict than simply a terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel. Israel is located in land that was traditionally Palestinian. And when we had the Nakba, in 1947 and 48, we had Israel expand and establish themselves as a state with the help of the colonial British government that decided with the coalition of European states that we're going to recognize Israel as a state. Since then, they have, expanding, they have been expanding their territory into Palestinian land, displacing Palestinian homes, uh, bombing Palestinian neighborhoods. And so what we have now is the culmination of many years of an apartheid state, of an occupation, and, and peace not being present. And 
you have the United States military giving billions of dollars to Israel. So do you want us to give the billions of dollars to Hamas? They don't even have a military. They don't have a military. And you have the expansion of land and the displacement of people who are essentially throwing rocks back. And so we have to understand what is going on in the region in the historical context. No, that I, th it I think people are smart enough. Not just in the enough. news cycle we're in right now. Yes, I think people are smart enough to understand what's going on right now. And, and you mentioned the poll of, of Israelis, uh, yet leaders in Israel have formed a unified government, which is something that many thought was almost impossible before this, meaning that political leaders in Israel who are not fans, who are not supporters of the Benjamin Netanyahu administration have decided to join him and form a unified government to fight back against Hamas and, and, and likely their backing and funding from uh, Iran. And so I think the American people are aware of that. Uh, with that said, I certainly do want peace for the Palestinians. But the Palestinian people, in my opinion, need to stand up against Hamas. It's not the United States' duty to do that. It's not Israel's duty to do that. If you're a Palestinian and you have Hamas in your region using you as an essential tool, if you will, to, to attack Israel, at what point will the Palestinian people stand up and say, enough is enough. You will not use us anymore as a cudgel in your battle against Israel because we just want peace. Why haven't they done that? Because I certainly think they should. The Palestinian people would like to have freedom from the occupation of the apartheid state of Israel. What about Hamas? What about Hamas? About no, I mentioned Hamas, Jess. What about Hamas? You keep this blaming us on Israel. If, what about Hamas? If you want to have a conversation, Sir Michael, I think we should, which means that when I speak, you can't speak over me. Well, I think and you're so being irrational, though, Jess. The leaders of Israel. They are unified in support of this war and the occupation of Palestine, but the Israeli people are not. Similarly, there are many people in Palestine who don't support the actions of Hamas. There are many people who have no idea what to do to get liberation from Israel because they're fighting an army that they don't have an army to fight back with. And that army is backed with billions of dollars of weapons from the United States government. So when you have a small terrorist group, Hamas, fighting back, committing atrocities, and that gets reported on. But we don't have decades of an occupation be reported on in the West. That's when we have this kind of lopsided coverage and conflicts when we have the United Nations very clearly calling out where the war crimes are committed. We cannot say that just because Israel is our ally, we will ignore all of the war crimes that they have committed. There are Palestinian people fighting for liberation and fighting for freedom against a military that they don't have the strength to be fighting. It's a lopsided situation and we need to call it as such if we really do care about civilians dying because many more civilians will die because they won't be able to fight the IDF off if they don't allow them to safely exit Gaza within the next 24 hours, which is impossible for a population of 1.1 million people to do. You said that they're fighting for liberation, they're fighting for freedom, against the IDF. You keep talking about the IDF. I've yet to hear you say they should also be fighting for liberation and freedom against Hamas. Uh, I think it's very, very dangerous Hamas to spread this type of propaganda. And to me, it's almost anti-Semitic to go as far as you're going. And we got to be very careful with that. Uh, if they want freedom, fight against Hamas. Fight against the people who are using you as tools against a war because they do not like Jewish people. That's who the Palestinian people should also be fighting if they really want liberation, if they really want freedom. But more rising after this. I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for 
speaker designee. The House of Representatives is speakerless as Louisiana Republican Steve Scalise dropped out of the speaker's race late yesterday, barely 24 hours after winning the nomination. Though the majority leader squeaked out a victory over Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, reaching the 217 votes needed to submit him as speaker, would prove a bit out of reach for Scalise. Here's more from Scalise. Uh, there are still some people that have their own agendas, and I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. This country is counting on us to come back together. There's no telling how the GOP caucus will rectify the inter-party fighting, but according to reporting from The Hill, House Republicans are set to meet this morning and possibly change the rules for selecting a speaker. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, who was nominated for speaker by Democrats, is not sitting idly. He's making moves. Per Max Burns, a Democratic strategist, he's telling reporters and or he's telling reporters Democrats and Republicans could come together to elect a consensus speaker, and that quote, it means partnering to reopen the House and changing the rules that were enacted in January that empower extreme members. Here to weigh in is politics reporter at Semaphore, Dave Weigel. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. So is it the case that uh, Scalise is pulling out, not because no one wants to work anymore, but because of this anticipated rules change? Uh, he didn't have enough support to become speaker. It was that simple. There, uh, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, long before this, were notable for how bad they were at corralling the, the I'd say, I want to say fringe, that's a little bit loaded, but corralling the most conservative members of their, of their conference. They have they lost a lot of key votes when they're in the minority. They lost key votes in the majority. Uh, they they have a small rump of Republicans that they sort of deal with by saying uh, these these are personal issues that you can't deal with these people. Uh, Scalise had the same issues uh, as McCarthy, and I think a little bit more opportunistic uh, opposition for people like Nancy Mace. He just didn't have. There is no one in this race at the moment who unifies most of the party. And with Jim Jordan, who we're getting to now, who has re-entered the race for Speaker, he is a conservative member who is best known for interrogating Democrats in the Oversight Committee, and there are moderate, more moderate Republicans who are worried that he'd be a loser in a general election. He's not as good a fundraiser as McCarthy. So that's their problem, just none of these, none of these guys have 217 Republican votes. Dave, I want to go back to that point uh, about Jim Jordan. So Jim Jordan's putting his name back in the ring. He's making phone calls. I mean, I, I know many individuals that are pretty intricately involved with this process. Do you see it being possible with McCarthy being the only person to at least get to 200 votes? Would it be possible for McCarthy to be renominated and then the majority of the conference changing the rules to permit a simple majority to approve the speaker? Because this idea of 218 is a relatively new, mm -hmm. new notion. This isn't something that's cemented in House rules. Yes, it didn't look like this morning they were going to go to that change. They were not going to require enough votes to go to the floor with a speaker designate because they can't get one. Uh, it, it's just that they're, they... This is a problem that McCarthy had in the past of announcing that they're going to go ahead with something before they have the votes for it. They just can't keep slipping on that banana peel. Uh, so there are people who do not have this, this many enemies in the conference. Um, what they're grappling with is that the conservative entertainment wing, if you want to say, and I'm not being pejorative, it's just a real, it's a factor in this race. Uh, they have their problems with most of the people uh, who might be speaker. Mm -hmm. With Tom Emmer, you will have Republicans uh, outside, inside the House, but mostly outside of it, commentators who say, why 
I can't believe we have a speaker who uh, didn't vote to challenge the 2020 uh, the 2020 election. Uh, with Jim Jordan, you have a lot of support from conservatives outside of you have from Donald Trump, but also Charlie Kirk, people like that. And the same problem from these the not even moderates, but just Republicans from Biden districts who think that is a losing strategy for them to to win in 2022. Uh, that's the that's the issue. You see, everyone whose name is put forward is shot down for some reason, some heresy that they have had in the past. No one is really viewing. I wouldn't say nobody. The, the, the problematic members who are not providing the, the 218 uh, are not viewing the speaker as just somebody who can run the votes and do the job. They have both substantive changes they want in how, in how uh, the next round of spending bills are introduced, what kind of cuts they're demanding, uh, and they don't, and they have ideological differences. And there's just enough of those people where none of these candidates satisfy them. It sounds like we can understand this as the faction of the Republican Party known as the Freedom Caucus exerting their power mm -hmm. to remove McCarthy from the speakership because they made some deals with McCarthy. It sounds like Biden made some deals with McCarthy as well, and he didn't make good on those promises. To me, this sounds like uh, the Democratic consensus, if we care about which direction our representatives are voting on the issues, uh, whether it's budgeting mm -hmm. or what have you, that the proposal from Matt Gates of piecemealing uh, those votes is the, the most democratic way forward. And it sounds like a group of people are exerting their support in the direction of its, its minority rule, essentially. And the speakership is being mm -hmm. used as a bargaining chip in that endeavor. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up what Gates has actually asked for, because his problems with McCarthy, uh, which McCarthy says are personal, McCarthy, Gates has listed some things that are not personal. They are those individual votes uh, not rolling things together in omnibus, things that McCarthy had promised at the start of the year. McCarthy's problem, he had many problems in this job. One is he he sort of had an SBF situation where he he promised a lot of people a lot of different tokens and a lot of different things, and then when they came to collect them, he couldn't give them to everybody. Uh, he could he couldn't deliver for uh, the 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 Gates wing of the party these th these reforms he promised. He couldn't deliver some of the moderates. Uh, he could deliver a, a a continuing resolution that funded the government because uh, they weren't interested in these reforms, but he promised something to everybody and he couldn't deliver. Uh, you're right, though, that what Gates has asked for and what some of the people who get called hardliners have asked for are things that Democrats, even in the House, say they would not mind having. If you had talked to Ro Khanna about those reforms, they didn't love every aspect of the Pelosi years and how much control was exerted by the Speaker on the agenda. There, There is the light at the end of this process on the reforms that, that would make some Democrats happy uh, you, they're out there. There's just not one figure who most, to enough Republicans agree on to go to the floor. The only figures who do agree on that would, would become speaker with some Democratic support. And that's something, I mean, this is what happens day after day of people arguing and negotiating and punching themselves out. They might get there, uh, but, but that's a really good point that there are some reforms that are not necessarily right-wing. They're not, not, not freedom caucus reforms. They're just changing how the House works reforms that could entice some Democrats to vote for somebody who is not in the race at the second. It wouldn't be a Jim Jordan, it would be somebody else. So David, you mentioned some of those reforms uh, that Gates required. Uh, Jim Jordan voted for Speaker McCarthy. Uh, Thomas Massey, who's actually uh, one of the founders with Jordan of, of the Freedom Caucus, and Massey is perhaps one of the most conservative members uh, of the Republican conference, right. generally speaking. Uh, so, so with all of those things in mind, what type of political turmoil does this put Republicans in, in terms of maintaining their House majority in 2024, let alone increasing that majority? 
that's a question that a lot of Republicans who want this to be over with uh, lead with, that lead with by asking, saying, how does this look to people? I, I, the polling thus far is actually not negative about what Republicans did last week. If you looked at it, it was YouGov CBS put up polling last week asking what voters thought of, of McCarthy getting dumped. 60% of Americans said they had no problem with it. Uh, it was a very sl- slim majority of Republicans, slim majority of conservatives, but a majority of Democrats, majority of independents were fine. Um, there is a sense among these Republicans, you talked to Mike Lawler, as I did uh, during this process, who say the, the, the impression of chaos makes us, look, makes us look bad. It's going to make it harder for us to get reelected. But people have very short memories. Uh, I remember the chaos that Republicans looked like they were in when John Boehner resigned and Kevin McCarthy, once again, maybe they should have learned their lesson, was in line to be speaker and couldn't get it. If you look back at the headlines from the time, the word chaos shows up, the word mm-hmm. disarray shows up. What they end up doing is picking Paul Ryan uh, and having a better 2016 election than any of them thought they were going to have. So there's a chance for them to get out of this. And that's, again, th- th- there's some people, Nancy Mace uh, keeps coming up as somebody who's, whose desires are very hard to read because they change from day to day. But some of these <laughs> conservatives in the conference want stuff that they are very confident. If you, if you go back and explain to voters, hey, it was messy. We had to shut things down for, not even shut the guy in the government, shut down the, without a speaker for a couple of weeks but we got you these reforms. I don't think they're wrong. I mean, just covering races around the country, I have not found voters as concerned uh, with whether there's going to be a speaker, who the speaker is going to be, with as with any policy committee con- Congress. I think the conservatives who say that voters are more concerned about spending, totally correct. And you can look at the polling if you don't believe them. It's been fascinating to see Ro Khanna introduce his plan. He gave the, the speech on the floor about weeding out corruption, that Americans are just fed up with corruption in Congress. He specifically introduced his plan to remove uh, any members of Congress from the ability to accept lobbying money, to trade stocks. And he also wanted 12-year term limits. And Matt Gates responded saying he'd remove his motion to vacate if we move forward with Ro Khanna's plan. Is that still, do you think, on the table at all here in the negotiation for speakership? Yeah, I don't think anything is off the table. Look at the dynamic of reporting this. I mean, something can be discussed, it sounds good, and then if four Republicans come out of the conference room and say they don't want it, already it's it's on it's on it's on its last legs. It, it can't happen. I mean, I think there has been a shift in the way uh, media is interpreting this. When Mitt Matt Gates was threatening to use the motion to vacate, it seemed well. He says that a lot. It's hollow. We're now in a, we're in a in a place where people can say, all right, four a handful of Republicans can sink this. But I think it, it still is uh, a possible way out of this. Uh, when you see a nego- – there has not been a negotiation like this really ever, with a speaker being ousted in the middle of, of the term and then having to find a new one without any Republican who's a consensus choice. So I'm not ruling out anything like that, uh, that a bunch of people could wind up unhappy because Democrats, uh, in order to get some of the things they wanted at this point, is mostly you know funding the government, funding uh, aid to Ukraine – got a couple things they wanted it is it makes sense and if you cover a state legislature of uh, which there are 50 this happens sometimes and it is not a gigantic crisis this usually happens it ends with the minority party cutting a deal to get some of the stuff at once it happened in new york not that long ago it happened in texas not that long ago there is a way through this that just seems alien to anyone who's been elected to congress at this this bigger stage and higher level who don't want to give up anything uh, really quickly david before we let you go in all of this chaos and craziness, as you've mentioned, we've been here before with Boehner, with, with Ryan. 
Who do you think Republicans will choose? Because it seems every name that comes up, the person fails to get to 217 or 218. Yes, that's a great question. I, I can see Emmer, who uh, checks most of the boxes that, that Republicans want, having the, few, the least enemies if he, if he goes for, uh, if, if Jordan cannot corral the votes together and he goes for it. It would be a promotion for somebody who Republicans know, who Democrats don't like and have run against, uh, and probably wouldn't offer much to them. I can see that happening. Uh, it is harder to imagine a Tom Cole, somebody the Democrats like quite a lot, that might agree agree to this stuff. But I'd say one scenario is somebody like Emmer, who uh, you could eventually get 217 Republicans to go for uh, with concessions, or so, that, or someone someone like Cole would be a situation where they can't do it, and they're electing a speaker with a rump of Democrats, which. Again, looking ahead to the 2024 election, that's new. It wouldn't have happened before. Um, and the record for that being unpopular with voters, I mentioned those state legislative situations, is not very high. I mean, uh, sorry, being unpopular with voters is not mm-hmm. is not that bad. Like voters, if they see the government getting some stuff done and they don't need to think about it and it looks like two parties came together to, to fix something, the response usually, unless things go terribly wrong, the economy collapses, is, all right, they figured it out. I can I can move on with my life. Most people around Maybe the country, as fascinating as this is, <laughs> not that interested <laughs> in the power play. Yeah, maybe the whip can get those votes together for the speakership faster than Kevin McCarthy could. Thanks so much for yeah, yeah. coming on and breaking this down with us. We have more rising after this. Conservative media personality Tucker Carlson railed against the influx of migrants continuing to pour into the country through the southern border, denouncing Republicans and Democrats alike for doing absolutely nothing. Here's a clip from the 30th episode of his show. Let's watch. The result is a country, our country, that is changing faster than it ever has, but not through democratic means. Instead, by force, through waves of mass immigration that not a single American voted for. What's happening is a crime. It violates both federal law and the core precept of democracy, which is that citizens get to govern their own countries. This is election rigging on a mass scale, and it's fueled by anti-white racial hostility. Earlier this week, thousands of migrants were released in San Diego, the biggest city near the U.S.-Mexico border, and a sanctuary enclave. According to the AP, 500 migrants, many seeking asylum, are being dropped off there by Customs and Border Patrol. And last month, legal crossings surpassed a daily average of more than 8,000. Meanwhile, President Biden, who's being clobbered in the polls, is uh, earning poor marks on the border issue as well. A Fox News poll released this week shows a majority of American, or 71% of registered voters, disapprove of the government's handling of the border, specifically Biden's policies. The poll also finds increased support for the border wall, a reversal from previous surveys. So I I don't want to sound too rash on the issue, but I think if Biden was just like, hey, you want a border wall? Let's build a border wall. And now let's also pursue some legislation that will actually address the issue of migration because we know that the border wall is easily scaled. It's not making a difference Mm -hmm. uh, as to the number of migrants crossing. We know that a lot of these folks 
are fleeing violence uh, that risks their life and injury much more than scaling the wall. We've seen videos of folks climbing it. What we really need from the Biden administration is leadership on the issue of sanctions against many of the countries people are leaving and coming to the United States from. We need Biden to discuss repairing U.S. relations with Latin America. We need Biden to discuss what the plan is when the U.N. sends troops to Haiti. Typically, you have to have Congress approve U.S. troops being on the ground in another country. This is a loophole uh, to get U.S. troops into Haiti. The Biden administration has deported more Haitian migrants than any other administration. We really need a plan. How are we going to process those seeking asylum and those who want to come to the United States to work, to be productive citizens, to join our society. They always complain that the labor market is too hot right now. Uh, there are too many jobs and too few workers, but then they also say that we can't possibly process this amount of migrants. We absolutely can. We can use the US military to do it. We can build more processing centers. And instead, they're doing nothing in the short term and apparently nothing really in the long term either. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right in terms of one of the first steps being to relieve some of those sanctions on countries such as Venezuela and many others. I mean, we have, for the most part, all but stifled economic growth uh, in those countries. And so you have a crime issue in part because of uh, the drug gangs. And then you also have an economic issue because people just aren't able to find work. And so you put those things together and you're going to have people wanting to go uh, to a better place. I think a part of also reform an immigration system is we don't have enough immigration judges. I mean, it, it is not enough to hear hundreds of thousands of people attempting to come into the country. We know that the administration just gave worker visas, I think worker visas to, what, 100 plus thousand uh, individuals. And part of my question is when those worker visas expire, uh, do we really expect those people to go back to their home countries, that, that rarely ever happens. The majority of them will stay in the United States. Uh, we have no clue where. We have no clue uh, who many of these people are in terms of their actual background. And I think people should know who's moving into their communities. That's really important. And I want to address something that Tucker said on his show. He mentioned a lot of this is in part because of anti-white racial sentiments. I don't know if I would agree with that. I mean, if you look at the videos, uh, not only of Americans in conservative states, but Americans in liberal cities such as New York or liberal uh, cities such as Chicago, you will see black, white, all types of people saying this is insane. We need to address this immigration problem. It has become an issue on the local uh, economy. It's taxing on some of the uh, issues that the local government is supposed to uh, address in terms of actual U.S. citizens, let alone the influx of illegal migrants. And so I'm not necessarily sure, Jess, I would take that particular uh, position that it's against white people, as I've seen Americans of every stripe say, we just do not like this issue at all. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably a larger historical picture here, how we had so many migrants come to the United States uh, to work, to start a life from European countries. And then when we have migrants coming in through California uh, from East Asian countries, when we have migrants coming over the southern border from Latin America, uh, we have a lot of crises. Uh, we don't have the capacity to support them. That's a lie. We absolutely have the public resources necessary to process the migrants coming over the southern border. Why is it that? we decide to adjust migration policy, adjust, adjust our processing centers when we have migrants coming in uh, from Ukraine who are refugees. Why is it that we adjust our policies when it is folks coming over from Europe, folks we consider to be white in the West? 
I think that's the main criticism here. And I don't know why you and I, Sir Michael, can name 10 policies just off the bat here that the Biden administration <laughs> could try or propose. But now that we have a migrant crisis of Latin American migrants coming over the southern border, they're doing absolutely nothing at all. That is insane when we put it yeah. in a historical context to just do absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, Jess, I mean, maybe they should, uh, the White House should call you and myself to sort of give them some advice on how to address this issue. I mean, look, I, I agree with what you said, 71% of registered voters you read at the top of this particular segment of Americans who are saying, we just do not approve of the handling. And I think in part because you, you look, I'll use New York City as an example. Uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, stated that New York will never be the same again because of the influx of migrants, where they're spending millions and millions of dollars. It's estimated over a billion uh, by the end of this year to try to figure out how to house these individuals, provide health care for these individuals. And the mayor has stated, we have a homelessness issue in New York City. We have an issue with trying to cater to some of our poorest New Yorkers who need basic necessities, particularly as the winter season is amongst us. We can't do both of these things at the same time. And so from the perspective of many Americans, people are saying, what about us? What about what we're going through? And yet we're somehow able to hand out $5,000 checks a month. In the case of Chicago, many of the black residents were complaining there, how do we have money to just hand out to illegal immigrants? But you have Americans right here in Chicago who are struggling to find decent work. And yet there are no resources for them. We're sent all of the money is tapped out in terms of the social programs. But somehow we have a billion plus dollars to give the people who aren't even U.S. citizens. People see this, Jess, and they say, hell no, we need to build a wall in that, in, in that particular case. Heck no, we need to send those people home. And it's not to say that Americans are against people coming into the country. I think people recognize that immigrants do indeed take jobs that many Americans just don't want to work for a whole host of different reasons. But I'm going to go back to something that uh, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, who chaired the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, stated uh, in the early 90s. And she was a Democrat, by the way. She stated that immigration is a choice, not a right, granted by the United States citizens when it is in our best interest. And so is it in our interest to have some immigrants fill some of those lower wage jobs? Absolutely. But it is also in our interest to have a cap on how many people we allow into the country. Yeah, I think it's an economic issue at the heart of it, because you have the United States founded on the premise of promoting the general welfare of the people living within the country. It's a constitutional promise to promote the general welfare. And you have this administration, and it's not unique to this administration because mm -hmm. the person responsible for this policy is Jerome Powell, who was appointed by Donald Trump. Biden has kept that guy as the head of the Fed. It is our explicit economic policy in the United States right now to keep interest rates high so that it is more difficult to start a business or invest in a new one. They're trying to quell economic activity at a time when inflation is at, an, uh, at a high. Mm -hmm. We cannot afford to have prices continue to go up. So why are you reducing supply by quelling economic productivity? We have the workforce necessary to increase GDP and increase productivity in the United States. We have jobs that need to get done. We have a crisis of people not being able to find childcare for their kids. We have a shortage of healthcare access for people who need it. We have work that needs to be done. We need to transition our energy reliance onto more renewable energy. We have to build that infrastructure. Public transportation is crumbling. We have to rebuild that. There is work to be done. And so the United States is deliberately deciding to restrain capital 
and quell economic activity. We could put migrants to work. We could put working class people who have remained unemployed for a long period of time mm-hmm. to work as well. We could increase supply and reduce prices, and that might cut into some of the corporate profits, but it wouldn't hurt business, especially big business, which is still enjoying record profits. And so at this point, it's an economic decision for them to decide, we're not gonna have a policy to integrate migrants into our workforce and make life better for working class people, but what will raising interest rates do? Well, anyone who can afford to loan money right now, wealthy people and big bankers, they're making a killing because they're the ones loaning the money out, getting it back at an 8% interest rate. We're injecting $1.2 trillion into the economy and putting it in the hands of the richest people. That's their deliberate policy. And I think once we finally have a leader who runs for public office, who runs on that, they're going to get support from both sides because it doesn't need to be a racial issue. We don't need to be fighting over scarcity. We need to be promoting the general welfare as the Constitution promises. More money for those at the top and not enough for those at the bottom. More for the rich, not enough for the poor. Uh, Jess, I'll just say quickly, People aren't anti-immigrant in this country. This country is mixed with all different types of folks from all over the place. But one thing that I think most people are against, I think most people are against being second in their own country. And in that regard, I think they're absolutely right to feel that way. More rising after this. Has former President Donald Trump gotten himself into hot water with the GOP? Well, in a speech this week, the former president criticized Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in the wake of the Hamas attacks in Israel. Trump accused Netanyahu of letting us down in 2020 before the United States killed a top Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Trump also said yesterday that Israel, quote, wouldn't have had to be prepared, end quote, if he were in the White House, and also referred to Israel's defense minister as a, quote, jerk. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. The press doesn't like when they say it. You know, I said that President Xi of China, 1.4 billion people, he controls it with an iron fist. I said, he's a very smart man. They killed me the next day. I said he was smart. What am I going to say? But Hezbollah, they're very smart. And they have a national defense minister or somebody saying, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack us from the north. So the following morning they attacked. They might not have been doing it, but if you listen to this jerk, you would attack from the north because he said that's our weak spot. I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that. And Uh, So when I see uh, sometimes uh, the intelligence, you talk about the intelligence or you talk about some of the things that went wrong over the last week, uh, they've got to straighten it out because they're fighting potentially a very big force. They're fighting potentially Iran. And when they have people saying the wrong things, everything they say is being digested by these people because they're vicious and they're smart. And boy, are they vicious because nobody's ever seen the kind of sight that we've seen. According to Hill reporting, the comments have already opened up Trump to criticism from the right, including 2024 GOP candidate Ron DeSantis, who wrote on X this week, terrorists have murdered at least 1,200 Israelis and 22 Americans and are holding more hostage. So it is absurd that anyone, much less someone running for president, would choose now to attack our friend and ally Israel, much less praise Hezbollah terrorists as, quote, very smart. As president, I will stand with Israel and treat terrorists like the scum that they are. Here with us to discuss is political reporter at The Hill, Julia Manchester. Thanks for being with us, Julia. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Good morning. Good morning. So Trump tends to 
word salad on issues such as this uh, with little sprinklings of current events and what's going on. I think possibly his supporters don't understand the issue from what he said there. What do you make of Trump's comments as a whole? Yeah, so some Republicans I talked to said, look, it wasn't the best choice of words and point to how he's called other, um, you know, controversial figures, danger, uh, dangerous figures or adversaries to the United States smart like Vladimir Putin, for example. But they also point out that he says they're smart and that they're not stupid. They're cunning. They know what they're doing. And a group like Hezbollah understands that. And he understands that um, a group like Hezbollah is a threat. At the same time, though, it does open it up for to criticism uh, from his critics because of the timing of all of this. You know, this was not even a week after those horrific terror attacks in Israel. And then, of course, in the same breath, he did um, criticize Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and, you know, sort of said, if I were president of the United States right now, this wouldn't have happened. So, you know, I think there's some, you know, questions as to whether this was the best timing, but I don't think at this point anyone thinks, you know, Donald Trump is actually praising Hezbollah. It was just a bad choice of words bad timing. And then another actually viewpoint I've heard on this is that, you know, Trump may be even looking at this from a strategic lens and trying to appeal to more moderate voters in the United States who may look at a leader like Benjamin Netanyahu, who is quite conservative and not popular with liberals in Israel and the United States and around the world and see it as Trump sort of trying to appeal to those moderate voters but still really um, getting a lot of attention and backlash from his Republican opponents. Julie, I want to unpack something that the former president stated uh, in his remarks. He stated that Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, let us down. What exactly was he talking about? Well, sure, Michael, he's referring to how, you know, back in 2020, when the United States was launching an attack to kill the Iranian general or top Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, that Israel did not participate. Um, there might also be some more um, baggage underneath some of the Trump's venting towards Netanyahu, though he didn't reference this. Remember, Trump has also criticized Netanyahu for congratulating uh, President Joe Biden for winning the 2020 presidential election. So this isn't the first time he's criticized the Israeli prime minister, but it is notable because there are so many similarities between Trump and Netanyahu, and they do have very close ties. Trump worked very closely with Netanyahu to establish the Abraham Accords, which essentially worked to normalize relations between the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Israel. Um, so they've had a relationship before, but this is Trump once again, um, you know, lashing out at him. So Trump has a tendency, I, I mentioned earlier, sprinklings of truth. Uh, to mention Iran in this case is to bring in a lot of the rhetoric we've been hearing, a lot of conspiracy theories on the right, that the money given to Iran to release hostages was used in the attack of Hamas in Gaza. And clearly, we've heard from uh, Anthony Blinken on this, we've heard from the White House on this, that Qatar actually, as a part of the deal, holds the strings to these funds and has agreed to, to block Iran from accessing these funds and they were not used. What do you make of Trump just mentioning Iran at all? Is he trying to speak to some of those sentiments and anxieties? 
I think he is. And we do know that Trump has hit Biden on the issue of Iran even before Biden was president, going back to the Obama administration with that administration's work to establish the Iran nuclear deal with Tehran. So that's not necessarily um, surprising to me that he's going after Iran at this point. It's been sort of a, a you know, a, a, an attacking point for the former president. And I would expect him to continue to voice concern, uh, concerns and, and attacks on the administration about the $6 billion, you know, even though um, there's no evidence that it was used in these terror attacks and that it's still frozen. You are seeing Democrats, you know, have to continue to go vocally on the defense about it because it is something that Republicans and conservatives and, um, you know, are very much, you know, promoting and messaging. You're even seeing some Democrats say, you know, it's maybe time to, you know, back away from that money and keep it frozen for the time being. So it's an attack point that I think we'll expect to see from Trump and other Republicans, despite the fact you've heard so many Democrats pushing back on it. Julia, I, I want to ask you a two-part question here. I mean, Trump made the statements when he was attacking uh, the military official in Israel that it just doesn't make sense to say, don't attack us in the North because that's where we're weaker. And then you get an attack from the North. And, and for the layperson, the average voter, they may look at that and say, well, Trump actually has a pretty good point. Why state or articulate your strategic weaknesses uh, publicly on air to then give your adversary the opportunity to attack you where you're weak? Uh, and then, two, do you think this is actually going to impact Trump in, in politically in, in any regard? I don't know if you're reporting if you've had the opportunity to talk to Republican voters, but how do they see this? Yeah, look, on the strategic part of this, so the first part of your question, uh, look, that's absolutely what Trump was doing and sort of, you know, offering some criticism to how Israel uh, handled that and their response to that. Um, you, you know, I think what garnered a lot of attention from those comments, though, is when he called the Israeli uh, defense minister minister a jerk. So mm -hmm. there might have been some con constructive criticism in there, but there was um, that phrasing, um, as that, that name calling in there as well, that raised a lot of eyebrows. In terms of how this impacts Trump politically, look, of course, we're going to see Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis go after him on this. It's very easy to. It's easy for the Biden administration the president to go after um, him on this as well, because, you know, it arguably was not the best timing, not the best choice of words. That being said, though, um, going forward, I don't think this will particularly impact him with Republican primary voters. Right before I was chatting with you guys, I was looking at a Fox News poll that was released earlier this week, and it shows Trump with 59 percent of uh, support wow. from the Republican primary, followed by Ron DeSantis at 13 percent and Nikki Haley at 10 percent. He really seems at this point and you know, a lot can change. So um, I'm not going to you know, say this is a set stone, but it really seems at this point that he is very close to sort of locking the nomination in at this point. Um, so it's hard to see how this impacts him, especially when we know that voters don't tend to uh, vote on foreign policy. However, if foreign policy starts impacting the economy or domestic issues here, um, that could potentially change.
I think you make it a, a good point here to focus on the language. Trump might call the defense minister a jerk, but someone with a background in foreign policy might say, you know, we're really critical of his actions. And Trump might call Hezbollah smart. Someone else might say, say they've been very strategic in the region. The sentiment, I think, to most voters is the same. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We have more Rising right after this. Medicare premiums are on the rise. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced the monthly Medicare Part A and B premiums for 2024, with costs set to go up by 6% next year. The premiums would increase by $9.80 from $164.90 to $174.70 in 2024, and the annual deductible for Medicare Part B beneficiaries will go up from $226 to $240 as well. This price increase comes after Medicare Part B premiums went down for the first time in more than 10 years in 2023. CMS said on Thursday, quote, the increase in the 2024 Part B standard premium and deductible is mainly due to projected increases in health care spending and, to a lesser degree, the remedy for the $340 billion acquired drug payment policy for the 2018-2022 period under the hospital outpatient prospective payment system. Um, Jess, I got to tell you something. I mean, we're looking at a 6% increase um, in 2024 from this year in the midst of inflation. That's a lot of money for the average American. And there's this fascinating study that came out from Physicians for National Health Programs that I was just looking over that showcases Medicare Advantage overbills taxpayers by $140 billion a year, Jess, which is enough to completely wipe out Medicare premiums according to this new report. Yeah, the amount of waste in our healthcare system in the United States is insane. The amount of money that we are overpaying for drugs and care, when we compare another country that spends less than healthcare than the United States, we find that they have better healthcare outcomes. And that's simply because we know that hospitals in the United States that run for profit are overcharging. We know that insurance companies are treating the insurance industry uh, as a profit-driven one. Health care is not the priority. They're not being honest in their practices. They're denying people necessary care, even when you have coverage and you're paying that high premium. Sometimes your insurance will come back to you and say, actually, we're not going to cover this service at all, even though it's in your plan that we will cover it because we've deemed it unnecessary. That's a decision that should be between a patient and a doctor, not an insurance company. And when we think about other countries that have universal health care, the common question is, well, doesn't that mean the quality of care will go down? Clearly not. They have better health outcomes than us. We hear the, the common statement that they're waiting in lines to receive care. When I call for an appointment with a specialist, I have to schedule it at least a month out. We are waiting in line. We're just not present in the office when we're doing so in the United States. So we've got to change how we do health care in the U.S. altogether. If the United States had universal health care, they could collectively bargain for better pricing instead of having the entire American people taken advantage of by corporations that want to treat healthcare like it's an industry that they can come in and just make money off of and not really care about health outcomes for the American people. Now, look, I think you're absolutely right. I want to read a quote here from this article that I referenced at the top. A quote, this is unconscionable, unsustainable, and in our current healthcare system, 
unremarkable, according to the new report. It goes on to write, Medicare Advantage is just another example of the endless greed of the insurance industry poisoning American health care, siphoning money from vulnerable patients while delaying and denying necessary and often life-saving treatment. To your point of having to make an appointment weeks, weeks in advance. I mean, look, I, I think for the average person right now, people just want decent, affordable care. And I have sort of tried to figure out if, the, if it's possible to sort of have a private sector option for those who want to pay for private care and also having some type of a government-backed option for people who, who need that. I mean, health care is incredibly expensive. I'll give an example. Uh, my mom right now is, is going through some cancer treatment. And granted, they have a private care, my parents that is, but it has taken so long, Jess, for just some of the most basic things uh, as it pertains to her treatment that she's considered going to a whole different state to try to see if the treatment could be expedited because one of the processes that she has to take, I think she can't uh, essentially get it until the end of November. And so when her and I were talking a, a couple days ago, she said, who knows what could happen to me in the next 30 plus days by having to wait for this next stage of my treatment to the end of November. And when she asked the physician, well, why is this taking so long? The doctor just said, well, this is just the way it works. Yeah, I think anyone who tries to frame this increased cost in premiums as something that is affordable, $9 is a meal for many people. Many yeah. people are struggling to make ends meet as it is. People are living month to month, if not paycheck to paycheck in the United States more than ever now. And you have our elected officials, Speaker McCarthy, the Republican caucus, and even many Democrats sounding the alarms, saying that Medicare and Social Security are programs that are going to become insolvent. When we talk about the defense budget and the amount of money we are spending, uh, on U.S. defense, which typically means we're on the offensive somewhere. It's, it's money that doesn't just go into defense. It funds the entire military. When we run out of money, or the Pentagon runs out of money, rather, simply the account is credited. That's all that happens. Congress votes to authorize more defense spending, and the account is, is given the necessary dollars. Someone simply presses a button uh, in the federal government, in the Treasury of the Federal Reserve. So when we talk about what is going on with spending? We need to put this in context. Are we running out of money in the Medicare and Social Security programs? Are those accounts running out of money? Or are elected officials just simply deciding not to spend public dollars on health care and retirement? So this framing that the U.S. government is running out of money and we're going to need to do something about programs that are insolvent, why don't we talk about it like that when it's the Department of Defense and the Pentagon wants more money to spend on weapons? Mm -hmm. And it's a deliberate choice, I think, by our elected officials in Congress. Well, look, I, I do think national uh, defense and security are, is an important issue for most Americans. I think people would agree with that. Uh, but I also think people want to be able to have access to affordable care. I mean, it's, it's costing seniors $165 coming out of their monthly Social Security checks to pay for this increase in premium. Uh, we already know that there is clearly not enough money to go around. We're in the midst of inflation, so everything's going, it's, it's just naturally more expensive. It is what it is. And so despite uh, some of the statements from the Democrats that the economy is getting better, I think for the average person, to your point of $9 uh, being a substantial amount monthly, that's going to make a difference whether the inflationary numbers look better or not. And I think that has to be a part of uh, the consideration. But again, I go back to this idea that the government's being overtaxed by $140 billion that could wipe out all Medicare premiums. Now think about that, Jess. 
We know that you could essentially wipe out Medicare premiums altogether if the government were to say, wait a minute, why do you continue to overbill us, which is now being passed on to the average American person, instead of saying, wait a minute here, we have to solve this problem for everyday people who are struggling to afford for medical care, particularly those who have ailing parents or may have some type of a health issue themselves. And we're not seeing that come from our, our political leaders, and I think we need to. Yeah, I think our political leaders deciding to fund public spending through the issuance of treasury bonds, mm -hmm. where when the interest rates go up and they claim interest rates going up is going to resolve inflation because of the effects on the economy, less people will take out loans, start businesses, there will be less jobs. People won't be able to work. But when you're issuing treasury bonds at what, a 5% interest rate over five and 10 years, you're going to disrupt the economy because now you're injecting a bunch of money into the hands of the wealthiest people. You are still increasing the amount of dollars in circulation. Do you want those dollars to go towards protecting our seniors, giving them health care? Or do you want those additional dollars that you're adding into the economy to go into the pockets of the wealthiest people? It's a very simple question. And we don't have Jerome Powell being questioned on the floor of Congress. <laughs> we don't have Janet Yellen being questioned on the floor of Congress asking, why are we doing things this way? Uh, and it's time we start asking that question. Why yeah. are we making decisions uh, in this manner where when we could instead be increasing the productive capacity of our economy by having a healthy population and spending public dollars on guaranteeing health care and paying for those premiums? Why are we instead just giving the money to the wealthiest people? Why do we have a tax on the working class with the promise that it will one day bring down inflation when the numbers show it's not and it's not quelling job growth in the economy either? I think that's a question that we need Janet Yellen to answer. We need Jerome Powell to answer. We need Speaker McCarthy to answer. We need Matt Gates to answer. And we need Bernie Sanders, the chair of the Budget Committee, to answer as well. Jess, you're listing everybody. <laughs> Somebody with an answer, please stand I up, right? <laughs> I mean, look, I go back. I'll say this quickly to the National Health Program. We know why premiums have increased, and we also know what it's going to take uh, to essentially wipe them out. We know that overpricing the government, overpricing the American uh, taxpayer is is a part of the problem, just I think individuals that you just named don't worry about this stuff because their health care is free or they can afford it. So why worry about the 90% of Americans who are struggling to take care of themselves when it's not their problem? More rising after this. Democratic Senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, unironically, as some conservatives are pointed out, had this to say about his colleagues in Congress while on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Let's watch. You all should need to know that America is not sending their best and brightest, you know, to Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. yes. <laughs> like, sometimes, sometimes you literally just can't believe, like, you know, these people are making the decisions that are, you know, determining the, the government here. It's, it's, it's actually scary. I mean, so... I may agree with John Fetterman, but, but why is he somehow the standard bearer of excellence, if you will, that Americans should look to to mimic in terms of the individuals they sit in the Congress? I certainly don't think he is. I don't think he said, you know, I am the, the shining bastion of hope in our democracy. Everyone who goes to Congress should be exactly like me. I think he <laughs> pretty clearly makes a valid criticism of a lot of our members of Congress who either intentionally or unintentionally don't understand how our economic system works the way that they've been doing budgeting for the past, uh, you know, decade and more. I think, you know, I can think back to being an undergrad 
when the government was shut down and Ted Cruz was reading green eggs and ham to his kids on C-SPAN. And I remember having absolutely no hope uh, for living in this country and pursuing a career in public policy. But I think he, he makes an accurate criticism here because it's either one or the other. It's either we have members of Congress that are paid uh, by lobbyists, they have stock in corporations like you know Pelosi does and many other members of Congress do. They're paid to govern in a direction uh, that is not what the American people want or need. And then they espouse reasons for why they are doing things in that way instead of taking the obvious path public policy-wise that would help people. And that makes them seem not so bright. I think being selfish makes you someone who's not so bright or they really don't understand how things work and they really believe we can't have nice things. And I don't know which is worse, but I know I agree with him that we are not sending our brightest, but it's a job that not a lot of people wanna do because guess what? You don't work in good company when you go to Congress, so I can understand why our brightest don't wanna go. I mean, look, you know, I would love to see some plans uh, from Senator Fetterman that addresses some of the issues that he believes his non-bright colleagues aren't quite focusing on. I mean, I think it's one thing to be critical of of a body being the House and the Senate or politics, generally speaking. It's a whole other thing to say, here are my criticisms, but here are also my solutions uh, to address those things. And I would love to see uh, some bills proposed in the Senate that come from uh, the senator. I would love to see uh, some of his critiques and rebukes and also suggestions on the various subcommittees and committees that he's a member of. I'd love to see those things. Again, it's easy for everybody to go on the Colbert Show to critique things or to be on social media to critique things, but let me see your solutions in addition to your critiques. Yeah, Fetterman in his first week uh, serving in the Senate introduced four bills, co-sponsored them. Uh, these bills were covering issues like receiving health care, the Better Care and Better Jobs Act, the Federal Adjustment of Income Rates, also known as the FAIR Act. He's someone who cares about policy. Unfortunately, we don't have a consensus of members of Congress in the Senate or the House who want to pursue good policymaking. They don't want to govern on behalf of the American people simply because they're paid not to. Fetterman is someone uh, who has supported the plans to weed out corruption in Congress and ban members of Congress from trading stock and ensure that we have members of Congress that are not taking lobbying money. He's someone who ran on this. He supported Bernie Sanders because he, he belongs to a faction of members of Congress who really wanna get big money's influence out of our government in the United States of America. And I think that's why he got such a big working class coalition uh, that was considered to be conservative in Pennsylvania. Uh, that wasn't the typical kind of liberals that elected members of the squad before. He appealed to conservatives as well because these are common sense policies that bolster up the working class. So I think, you know, Fetterman's probably just a little upset that he's working with so many people that are unwilling to legislate to address the issues most everyday American people face, the people who elected him to represent uh, them in Congress. I mean, look, Jess, I'm going to take your word that he did offer those bills in his first couple of days or weeks uh, as a senator. Uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I'm sure I'd probably disagree with some of the senator's solutions uh, to the problems that he's critical of. And that's okay. That's, that's a part of the political process. That's a part of the legislative process. You try uh, somehow to meet in the middle to avoid the policy paradox. And so if Fetterman is uniquely concerned about those things, whether he's a Democrat or not, whether I disagree with the way he dresses, which I absolutely does, I'm willing to have those conversations with the Democratic senator to say, hey, let's try to figure some of these things out. And I would even uh, go as far as to say I would love to see the senator um, go to the floor in the Senate and give a speech 
on the importance of the American people sending the best people to represent them. I would support the senator going to the floor to say, look, demand that your political leaders actually have your interests at heart, not the interests of uh, special interest groups. I mean, those are things that I think uh, he would get applause from both sides of the political aisle in this country. You know, Fetterman has said these things in press conferences before, on the floor of Congress, clearly on the Colbert show, and in his regular press conferences. And I think when we consider the problem he's uh, addressing there on Colbert of why do we have members of Congress that are not so intelligent, I would point to a few problems in our democracy. We have people in the party machine who are propped up as candidates. Uh, they become a household name because of the advertising money that they get. Uh, and most people don't have the time or the energy to look into candidates beyond what they get in their ads on their local televisions, in their newspapers, and when they come and stump. We have a crisis in our democracy where people running in primaries for local and state elections, including you know, electing members of Congress to represent them on the federal level, they don't have good information. We don't have a lot of competitive primaries. And I really think it's a crisis of a two-party system that's run by establishment, that establishments that are beholden to the corporate interests that give them money via PACs. And so I really think if we want our best and brightest to go to Washington, D.C., we need to bolster up our democracy. We need real competitive primaries. We need people to be primaried when they're an establishment candidate and they're not doing the job of representing the people in their district. I really think competitive primaries is a good step forward. Uh, and I think Fetterman pointing this out is a good first step. Someone on the inside is, is willing to criticize their colleagues in Congress. We need that as well, just as much as we need grassroots organizers pushing candidates up who are fighting and challenging establishment candidates so that we don't have a Congress that's stagnant and the oldest Congress in history and a Congress that's unwilling to address the issues everyday Americans face. They see their lives getting worse and they see the representatives not doing much about it. And I think a lot of them are not sure why. Yeah, I mean, Jess, I, I look to see where Fetterman addresses this on the floor of the Senate. I, I do see that he's made mention of it in various press conferences. I do see at least one or two occasions where he's mentioned it tacitly uh, in a Senate floor speech or in Senate remarks on the floor, uh, in addition to other remarks. But I haven't seen him specifically address this overall, and I think he should. I mean, I think the next time there's a vote in the United States Senate, I would pause the whole process to say, wait a minute here, has everyone ever actually read through this? Do we really know what we're voting for? Do we know the implications of this economic bill that we're getting ready to pass to add on trillions of dollars of debt uh, to future generations of Americans? And then maybe you take a vote. But I think doing something like that in the midst of such a pivotal moment would certainly get a lot of attention and get a lot of focus and, again, get support from people in his own state, including Republicans. I'm confused. So you're saying you've seen him give speeches on this on the, the floor of the Senate and in press conferences, but not overall? No, no. So what I'm saying is he's tacitly remarked on this issue at press conferences and on the floor. What I'm saying, he should go to the floor and give an overall speech on the decays of Congress. And he could do that as a member of the Senate. A speech hope, specifically uh, about this particular issue and not just mentioning it in addition to a whole bunch of other issues, which is what I've been able to find online. Yeah, I mean, the, the, he's supporting Ro Khanna's legislation. If what, I'm not sure what issue specifically you're talking about. Corruption in Congress as a whole is something he talks about a lot. Uh, I'm not sure what issue you're specifically talking about. Ro Khanna is the one who introduced the bill uh, that the Progressive Caucus overwhelmingly supports, including Matt Gates, to ban members of Congress from trading stock, taking lobbying money, and having term limits. And he did give a pretty powerful speech on the floor of Congress. And I think that's why you have some of the populist uh, members of the right 
in Congress, in the Freedom Caucus, the Republicans, the House GOP, saying, you know what, we support Ro Khanna's policy because I think they're just as upset with the stagnation we see in Congress. And I'm not saying Matt Gates is one of our best and brightest, but if you have the wherewithal to support this basic policy that would weed out so much corruption we have in Congress, I think you're doing better than a lot of members of the GOP Congress, and frankly, a lot of members of the more establishment side of the Democratic caucus as well. And so I think this new brand of congressman that is willing to challenge the status quo is good, whether it's Fetterman or Matt Gates, even though I disagree with most of Matt Gates's policy platform, I really do think that it's good that we have candidates like Fetterman, you know, criticizing their fellow members of Congress that are representing a way of governing that has proven to fail. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I get your point of Roe Khanna's speech on the House. I haven't seen that on the Senate side. Fetterman could be that individual to give a more in-depth, robust speech to you saying you don't know what I'm talking about. It's one thing to give a, a critique at a press conference. It's another thing to go into Stephen Colbert's show and say, oh, I'm critical of this. It's another thing to go to the floor and make a bunch of comments and then slide in. Oh, yeah, by the way, I don't like the way we're doing business, but continue on with your commentary. It's a whole other thing to literally go to the floor of the Senate with the sole purpose of addressing your critique and addressing your colleagues about their failures to the American people. And that is my point. If Fetterman really wants to raise this question, go to the floor and make a speech specifically about these issues and these issues only. Uh, more rising after this. looking to bring stability to the country where gang violence has escalated into a form of urban guerrilla warfare. The U.N. Security Council has greenlighted the deployment of a thousand member forces in Haiti led by Kenyan police. The gangs have, quote, military-grade weapons and connections with mafia networks, transnational criminals, and major financial resources, said Franz Elbe, who has led the Haitian National Police for two years. Joining us now to discuss is English language editor at Haiti Liberté, Kim Ives. Help us parse through what all of this actually means for Haiti and U.S. relations. Well, this is going to be the third U.S sponsored foreign intervention into Haiti in three decades if it comes to pass. Uh, but uh, it's different from the last two in 1994 and 2004, which were UN Security Council, uh, actual genuine UN peacekeeping forces, what they call the blue helmets. This is kind of an end run on the Security Council, which the U.S. has somewhat lost control of since the multipolar world announced itself in February 2022. And it is um, essentially created this proxy in Kenya to uh, lead the force because they didn't want to do it. The Canadians refused, the Jamaicans refused. So the Kenyans stepped up, or I should say they were bribed to do so. And uh, now the U.S. will be running the show, paying for the show, but the Kenyans will be the blackface in front. And um, it's really a recipe for disaster. Kim, I, I want to unpack this a bit further. So we had the assassination of President Jovenel Moise. Uh, that really sort of put the island country in, into complete chaos. Current Prime Minister Ariel Henry 
has really struggled with trying to get a hold on this level of violence. Can you really explain to the audience why we've sort of seen this shift after the assassination of the former president, and why has it been so difficult for the PM to sort of coalesce uh, the country together to decrease this level of violence we're seeing? Well, first, he has zero legitimacy, no mm -hmm. popularity. The, the population hates him. And uh, furthermore, the assassination, which has the fingerprints of Washington all over it, uh, was abetted by Ariel Henry. He was making phone calls to the guys who told the Colombians to shoot uh, Moise uh, at uh, one in the morning. At four in the morning, Ariel Henry was talking on the phone with him. He claims he doesn't remember the calls, even though they amounted to seven minutes. So the population completely despised Ariel Henry. He's invited in the foreign troops, again, a flagrant violation of the Haitian constitution, uh, which says no foreign boots on the ground in Haiti. Uh, but he's invited them in, even though he has not one elected official in his government. There isn't one elected official in Haiti. So he's a completely de facto tyrant and has uh, essentially been doing the bidding of Washington, Ottawa, and Paris, who put him in power through what they call the core group, which is a Washington ring-led group of ambassadors in Haiti. Unfortunately, the Jess, I Go just ahead. want to follow up really quickly. Yeah. So, so, Kim, you, you mentioned the, the core group. I have some familiarity with this. But why would Washington be explicitly interested in seeing a change in power? Like, why would they have assassinated the president and then put Ariel Henry in power? Like, like explain that, because a lot of people might be a, a bit confused to see so much interest from the U.S. in such a small island country. Yeah, well, um, Haiti... Um, is the target of a thing called the Global Fragility Act, passed under mm -hmm. Trump, total bipartisan support, where the U.S. is aware of the march of China across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Even here in the Dominican Republic, where I am, they went over to the People's Republic of China from Taiwan in 2018. And uh, the, uh, China has been making great overtures to Haiti to drop Taiwan. Haiti is one of only 11 countries, if we don't count the Vatican, which recognizes Taiwan as China. So uh, this is one reason. And also, Jovenel Moise was starting to have second thoughts. He'd become the poster boy for the U.S. campaign against Venezuela. Uh, he'd been uh, playing with the U.S., and he started to realize as things turned to sand in his hands, that he maybe had to rethink his policies. And he opened up just one month before his assassination, diplomatic relations with Russia. He apparently went to Turkey, making overtures to Russia. Um, he was uh, beginning to open talks behind the scenes uh, with uh, Maduro to repair relations there. It has to be remembered that Venezuela gave Haiti some uh, $5 billion worth of cheap oil and gas under the Petro-Caribe Accord, uh, under which Haiti got to keep half of the uh, revenues for social projects in his countries. So uh, Jovenel Moïse was rethinking all that. He was losing control of the situation and maybe looking like he was going to turn his coat. And so I think the U.S. Uh, knocked him out. And in fact, a, a former host of this show, Ryan Grimm, put out 
pointed out that uh, former U.S. Ambassador uh, Pamela White said in a hearing at the Congress that uh, maybe we should exercise the prime minister option, which basically means ditch the president and use the uh, principal executive post in the country, prime minister. Yeah, this is one of those news stories of U.S. intervention that is not reported on frequently for the American people. Following the 2004 coup, there was about over a decade, I believe it was 13 years, that U.N. troops were present in Haiti. And currently we have the U.S. ambassador to Haiti saying things on the floor of the United Nations like this is a, a operation that is welcomed by the people of Haiti. And we were invited there and they want us there and need our help. And then you have many folks in Haiti that are critical of the U.S.-backed coup of a democratically elected leader who still feel they haven't been brought to justice for a lot of what went on when U.N. troops were there. Uh, U.N. troops have immunity. There are a lot of accusations of rape of women, children, including boys, accusations that they were defecating in the water there and that caused an outbreak of cholera that cost 10,000 lives. So what do we make of this? Why do we have the ambassador saying this is a welcomed coup? And then you have people in Haiti calling this a continuation of an unwelcomed occupation that could further destabilize the country. How should Americans be squaring these contradictory stories in their minds? Yeah, and by the way, just in passing, it wasn't just accusations that their sewage leaked into the headwaters of Haiti's greatest uh, river and thereby killed, they say, 10,000, but it's probably much more Haitians with cholera and uh, sickened maybe close to a million. But uh, th these are things that are patently true. Uh, the uh, occupation of the minister that you're referring to from 2004 to 2017 had sexual predation. It had uh, massacres in poor neighborhoods and uh, against what they called gangs then too, which were essentially resistance to that UN uh, coup and uh, occupation. So uh, right now, this is just one more reiteration of the US uh, empire establishing, trying to establish its control over Haiti, which has always been a beacon of liberal. It was the first independent nation of Latin America. It was the Haitians who gave uh, Bolivar all his uh, needs to carry out the revolutions on the continent. So Haiti has always been targeted, and uh, not only for the geostrategic reasons that I mentioned before with China's advance on the continent, but also its mineral wealth, which is uh, largely declared, uh, a lot of it hasn't been actually proven, except for the gold in the mountains of the north, some $20 billion worth, but it's all in the form of gold dust. Columbus got most of the gold veins. Uh, so that gold dust means you got to blow up the mountains and then sluice them with cyanide, which is going to destroy all the rivers and the water table, et cetera. So the Haitian people are totally opposed to Ariel Henry, who is a complete puppet of the U.S., Canada, and France. And uh, they are opposed to this intervention, no matter what uh, the uh, uh, chief of police or the prime minister, de facto prime minister, or the U.S. ambassador, or uh, Antonio Guterres at the U.N. says, the Haitian people do not want it. Kim, as, as we wrap here with this final question, I mean, there's a lot of complexities to this story. The entire international community right now is up in flames. Why should Americans care about this? Why is this important? 
uh, to people who are looking at what's going on with, with Israel and, and Hamas, they're looking at what's going on in Ukraine, they're looking at China, and here's another story, but, all, but in our own hemisphere, and they're thinking, oh my God, this is too much. Why is this important? Well, this is important because Haiti is, I could say, uh, central to that belt of islands, Cuba, mm -hmm. Haiti, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, which runs across the middle of the Caribbean. Uh, for many years, the U.S. has called it its backyard. Now Biden's calling it the front yard. Uh, but the fact remains that geostrategically, it's a very important country. It is um, uh, right on the Windward Passage, across the Windward Passage from Cuba, where all the shipping that goes from the East Coast to the Panama, Panama Canal passes. And plus the fact it has a revolution burgeoning. These gangs, what they refer to as gangs, are in many cases armed self-defense groups, which are calling for revolution in Haiti, overthrow of the system. And this scares the daylights out of Washington and its handmaiden, the Haitian oligarchy in Haiti, and so they really feel they have to get out in front of this, stop this uh, revolution, this burgeoning revolution in its embryonic stage uh, before it gets out of control. And we have another Cuba uh, across the Windward Passage. Kim Ives, this is a fascinating story and I do hope people pay more attention to it. Thanks so much for joining us. More Rising after this. Cut the BS. Well, that's what one of Vice President Kamala Harris's allies directed her critics to do per a new New York Times Magazine profile of the VP published earlier this week. As Axios deep dive on the piece, the outlet casts Harris as an asset to President Biden despite her series of missteps at the beginning of her tenure. Two and a half years into her position as his number two, White House senior advisor told the magazine, Harris has, quote, found her voice and she's found her role. Per the magazine, which spoke with 75 people in her circle, all of them expressed differing opinions about the VP, agreeing only on the fact that the public has a fractured perception of her. And the proof is in the polling, a latest 538 tracker, Harris has a nearly 55% disapproval rating, 39% approve. So this is shocking information uh, that <laughs> you have reports that you know, we think the public's divided on her, but it turns out they're pretty uh, divided on her as well, those in her inner circle. Mm -hmm. So I think Kamala Harris is a figure that's been given an impossible task. Her job as vice president has been to handle the issue uh, of immigration. And this is at a time when they've deported more Haitian Americans uh, or Haitian migrants rather than ever before than any prior administration. There's a crisis on the southern border thanks to a number of factors, including U.S. sanctions. And so Kamala Harris has not been a super vocal figure on the issue of immigration. And this is considered the administration's weakest issue, but Joe Biden did also inherit a crisis. And so she was kind of given an impossible task. But given that those in her inner circle uh, are divided on her, I think it tells us what we need to know about Kamala Harris. And it's that maybe the public disapproval rating is founded in some actual uh, real criticism about how yeah. she's decided to govern as VP. 
No, I mean, look, Jess, I think you're right in terms of the portfolio she was given being incredibly impossible. I mean, no one's been able to solve the immigration crisis for, what, 30 years now? I mean, various presidents, Republicans and Democrats, you had the gang of, what, eight or 12 a couple of years ago, Republicans and Democrats who tried to come together to come up with a bipartisan solution. It didn't go anywhere. So this isn't a new phenomenon in that regard. So I think you're absolutely right. She has a portfolio that's almost impossible to solve. And so, you know, I think Americans should probably set expectations in that regard. And I think most probably will. But with that said, I do think the criticisms are legitimate. I remember, Jess, a Washington Post article that came out in 2021, November of 2021, and it talked about Kamala Harris's staff problems. And if you read through that article, it talks about how she doesn't like to read through briefing books. It talked about how she would berate her staff when she would have an unsuccessful uh, interview. And, and it also talked about how she had a high turnover rate of staffers only staying with her for about a year or a couple of months and then moving on. And so from that perspective, if you're an outsider looking in, you have to question, I mean, is this someone who is prepared uh, to lead the country if something were to happen to the president? And if you were to base your analysis off of that fall 2021 Washington Post article, which was very, very in-depth, then the answer is equivocally no. Yeah, I think... Kamala Harris getting such a small fraction of support from Democratic voters in the Democratic primary should have told the, the Biden camp that she wasn't the best pick for VP. I think if we were to have a democratic process that really functioned well, uh, it would be apparent for most Democrats that the runner up is a likely good pick for VP. If voters were excited to vote for them in the primary, they're probably a good candidate that will excite people to turn out in a general election, but that's never how the Democratic Party has decided to operate. In fact, Bernie Sanders being the runner up in 2016 and 2020 was a candidate that they actually did the opposite of. They tried to quell support for Bernie Sanders. A lot of Democratic strategists were taking money from the victory fund that was meant to be used in the general election, using it to prop up their establishment picked candidate. And the consequence of that is now we have a VP that's incredibly unpopular, which I think is just going to hurt Biden in his run in 2024, because yeah. a lot of people are concerned about Biden's age and are really seriously thinking about what the world would be like if Kamala Harris was the president of the United States. I mean, look, this is what happens when you choose someone because you're trying to check a box. I mean, I, I just have to be honest about that. We, we all know for a fact that Joe Biden was struggling. And if it were not for uh, Clyburn in South Carolina and black voters uh, who saved his failing campaign, it probably would have been Bernie Sanders as a Democratic nominee against uh, Donald Trump. And as a part of black voters helping him sort of re reviving his dead campaign, he made the promise, essentially, that he would select a person of color as his running mate. But Jess, I want to go back to that Washington Post piece in 2021 that I mentioned. And here's something that really stood out to me. Quote, staffers who worked for Harris before she was vice president said one consistent problem was that Harris would refuse to wade into briefing materials prepared by staff members, then berate employees when she appeared unprepared. Now, look, I don't have anything against the vice president. I recognize the history of her being appointed to the role, but I'm going to ask the viewers, do you want someone leading the country who doesn't like to wade into complicated material? I would probably say no to that, especially with some of the topics that we're talking about on this show from Ukraine and now Israel uh, to Haiti. And who knows what's going to pop up over the next four years. 
I want someone, and I would imagine most people out there want someone who's going to take the time, spend the hours digging into the nuances, asking the tough questions so that they're equipped to make the best decisions with the advice, obviously, of their advisors. Here's someone who obviously isn't interested in doing those things. And so that alone, at least for me, is disqualifying. So when you look at that low approval rating, it's not only do Americans watch her interviews, they watch her always laughing about every freaking thing. She does not appear to be a serious nor prepared candidate to lead this country forward if she became president. That's why I think a lot of the problems in uh, American democracy right now can be categorized by just a propping up of the status quo by the establishment of either party. You have Kamala Harris in the position of vice president, not reading her briefing materials. That is insane. We had Donald Trump be criticized criticized for similar preparation tendencies, uh, how he wanted his security briefings, what have you, to be extremely simplified. I take that over someone refusing uh, to read them, and I do trust staffers who are reporting on this. But when you have a Democratic Party that wants to prop up the status quo, that's kind of what they want. They want mm. someone who is not fully prepared, who's going to speak in platitudes. They want someone who won't get in the way of what the establishment wants to do, whatever that might be, which is usually something in the direction policy-wise of what corporations in the United States uh, want them to do. When you look at the amount of lobbying money collected by US government officials, it's pretty clear that they're paid to work for someone else, not the American people and it's corporations. And that's really what the establishment of either party has been about for quite some time. And now we're at the point where we don't even have leaders who pretend to represent things of value, who pretend to get things done policy-wise. We could have Kamala Harris addressing Congress today saying, hey, we are sending troops to Haiti. There's probably going to be a crisis there. We're probably going to get migrants coming over the border for Haiti. We need some policy. What's our answer? What's our solution, Congress? Let's draft some legislation. I'll work with you. We'll work together. No, we don't even have her pretending to try and work what she's tasked to work on. And I think they're relying on Americans uh, being so apathetic because of how our country has been run for so long that they're not paying attention to the administration and what they're doing because they have learned to not expect much. Uh, and things need to change before we have the you know, converging crisis get so bad that we can't handle them. No, I think you're right. I mean, it's almost interesting to me because anytime someone is critical of the vice president, uh, you're either going to be called a racist. Uh, if, if you're a black person criticizing the, the vice president, it's you don't support uh, black women. I, I've, I'm just saying some of the things that I have seen on social media or some of the commentary that I've heard from others on various networks. And, and I think you can recognize the historic moment of a figure while also being critical of the figure and their ability to do the job well. Uh, Kamala Harris has not been tested on the national stage. She ran for president and dropped out before the first votes were ever cast in a Democratic primary. She never received substantial support uh, from black voters for a plethora of different reasons that I don't necessarily need to go into on this show. People can Google those things for themselves. And so her only chance of potentially becoming president is if Joe Biden were to run again and for whatever reason decides to not complete the term. Uh, but I, I, I'm not certain that this is someone who could run on the national stage and get enough support to even win the Democratic uh, nomination. And again, I go back to look at what her staffers have stated about her, going all the way back to 2021. 
This is just not someone who takes the job serious. And I agree with you, Jess. There would be a lot of criticism if this were Trump. And there was criticism because he wanted things with, with photos and pictures in a very simplistic way. I remember some folks saying this is very childlike for the president. Well, hell, give me the childlike individual who at least has some interest in what's going on versus the person who says, I just don't want to read anything at all. Yeah, I think as a, a woman, thrilled that we have a woman VP. But I think also when we consider identity politics, the reason we value representation from our communities is because we think they'll govern in a direction uh, that props up your community in some way, that represents your interests in a way that they haven't been represented before. So in the case of Kamala Harris, when we look at her track record, is she someone who is doing a good job representing black mothers policy-wise when she tries to enact a policy uh, where she would have to arrest black mothers if their child skipped school. Sometimes that's something that a parent has no control over. I cut class, it had nothing to do with my parents. They didn't even know. Should they have gone to jail or prison for that? When Kamala Harris was the top cop of the state of California, she continued the enforcement of a lot of draconian drug policies in a state that was pretty progressive when you consider uh, the usage and sale of marijuana. Mm -hmm. And so when we consider how she represented her community, which by the way, drug crimes, especially marijuana, uh, are disproportionately uh, brought against members of the black community, it's her continued enforcement of this policy, something that propped up the racialized policing that continued in California? Or should we have gone with a candidate like Barbara Lee, who is also a black woman, who had an intense policy background, who was popular among the same progressive voters that voted for Bernie Sanders? That would have been the smart strategic pick. Why didn't they go for Barbara Lee, who also fit that identity? And it's because she's someone who represents policies that would bring the country in a direction they don't want to go in. The Democratic Party overwhelmingly propping up the status quo is going to cost them so many voters in 2024. If they had gone with a progressive pick for VP who still fit the identity requirements that they wanted, uh, they would have been much better off. And I think they're going to have a much harder time because they picked the candidate that satisfied the, satisfied the identity that they wanted, uh, but didn't do much on policy in Biden's first four years here. You know, that's interesting that you brought up um, her time as uh, California's top cop. Uh, in, in 2022, she gave a, a national speech. I don't know if you are familiar with this speech, uh, Jess. It, she was making a push to make black maternal health a national priority. She's talking a lot about uh, ma uh, the maternal mortality crisis within the black community. And I remember watching that with great intrigue because it, it appeared to be uh, the administration's way of trying to rebrand Kamala Harris, um, maybe a year before the conversation that we're having today about this sort of rebranding effort of her. Uh, I, I think that they are acutely aware of some of the criticisms of the vice president, particularly from black men, um, I would argue. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to see how when you talk about her arrest of African-Americans, particularly single black mothers, and then a year later, after that Washington Post piece, you have her making national speeches about black maternal health being a national priority. It, it's obvious that they're trying to pivot to say this is someone who does care uh, about black women. We'll see whether or not black people actually believe that or not, though. Uh, more rising yeah, right after nice. this. Guys, we've solved the age-old question. Bigfoot is real, or at least that's what tourists believe after filming this video while on a train in Colorado. Let's watch.
It's an elusive creature. Alright, just squat it down. Yeah, let me see your camera, I'll do it. One of the eyewitnesses, 44-year-old Shannon Parker, told the New York Post, quote, we were looking for elk in the mountains, and my husband sees something moving and then can't really explain it, so he's like, Bigfoot? The video follows another viral capture of a possible skunk ape in the woods of Mississippi. You know, I love these videos, Jess. I have been infatuated with Bigfoot ever since I was a kid, always hoping that it really existed, he, she, whatever. And now we have some video footage that may confirm my childhood dreams. <laughs> yeah, I've always been fascinated on, you know, the weird stuff, the aliens, the Bigfoot, uh, the unknown. I took a class when I was an undergrad on world archaeology. We covered human history. And I always, it didn't sit right with me that we have our descendants, right, in the theory of evolution, but a lot of ancient hominids that came before Homo sapiens that were kind of in between, uh, you know, what we see, chimpanzees, gorillas, and human mm -hmm. beings, right? Mm -hmm. that, that they were all killed. I find that fascinating. Why did we do that? But also I find it interesting that what if, you know, maybe some of the species are still surviving and living in the woods and they have a secret society and they live in caves like that would be really cool. <laughs> Is there evidence of that? No. Could have this been a prank and that's a guy in a suit? Maybe. Yeah. But I would like to believe that perhaps we didn't kill all of the iterations of, you know, humans that came in between, you know, what we see as chimpanzees and gorillas and human beings. I think that would be cool. There's still some version of hominids out there. There's, you know, there's so much uh, unknowns. I, I, I want to borrow this quote from a long time ago from Donald Rumsfeld, and this is such an interesting way to use this quote in this particular conversation. But there are known unknowns, right? <laughs> so there's so much stuff that we just don't know uh, about Earth, about the universe, and I think human beings are just fascinated with wanting to know, are there other creatures, other intelligent life on our own planet or beyond? And so when you see videos like this, I think it makes people really wonder, what if this is real? Could it possibly be that these large creatures have existed alongside of us for thousands of years and we just never knew? Yeah, what if one of those UFOs crashed and the non-human biologics in the UFO <laughs> was a Chewbacca, Chewbacca looking dude, you know, like it's it's pretty cool that you go on the train, you see, you know, Bigfoot, but also maybe potentially an alien that looks like Chewbacca. Maybe the aliens look like us. Maybe they look like, you know, iterations of human beings. I think any theory goes until we figure out what was <laughs> spotted out there in Colorado. I love that the internet immediately jumped on this and made it go viral, yeah. especially when we're in a time when so many videos are AI and are fake. We still get a Bigfoot clip and we're like, maybe, maybe. We haven't <laughs> right. admitted yet that it could be a deep fake. I mean, like, I, I love these videos because having these conversations really do bring out the inner child, I think, in all of us. 
Uh, we all, I think, yearn and wonder about, again, the possibilities, things that, as we get older, we're told there's no way this could be true. Aliens aren't real. There's no way Bigfoot is really out there living in the woods in a secret society in caves, as you put it. And when I saw that video on X, formerly Twitter, I looked at it so many times, Jess. I shared it with a bunch of my friends, and we all started texting back and forth, like, holy smoke. Is it like, what if that's a, a real thing? I mean, again, it just sort of unleashed that imagination that I think many of us cage as we get older. Yeah, I, I want to believe we don't understand everything about the world, because if we did as human <laughs> beings, things wouldn't be as much in crisis as they are today. Isn't that true? Uh, I do like yeah, I like the theory that this could be a big distraction from everything in the media cycle. But I think, you know, people are still going to pay attention to everything that's going mm -hmm. on in, in the news. It's yeah. just that we have this additional other thing of the prospect of mystical creatures living among us on planet Earth. I'm waiting for the Colorado Park Service to do a full search of what's <laughs> going on. Are the biologists getting on this? Are they getting out there in the field doing their research, trying to identify what this was? Or do we think but they fully understand what's in the woods and they've written this off and there's not going to be a response from the scientific community because there has been a little bit of a dismissal from the scientific community yeah. of a lot of the mystical creatures that are rumored to be, you know, living among us on Earth. I wonder how many people, Jess, on the train also saw it. Because I didn't hear a lot of people saying, oh, my God, do you see that? And I'm just wondering, the video wasn't very long, so we have no clue what really occurred afterwards. But I wonder if there are others who saw it and could, could have gotten maybe better footage or maybe they zoomed in a bit more. Hear me out. This could just be a really elaborate plot from the tourism <laughs> department in Colorado. You know, they could be like, listen, we're not raking it in as far as tourism goes in the state. What can we do? Like, Jimmy's got that suit in his closet. Let's send him out there. I think we need more creative ways to raise local revenue. And perhaps this is Colorado, you know, just doing their very best at that. Well, look, I know, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking about planning my next trip to Colorado next spring. I want to see if maybe just I'll get a clip of Bigfoot next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's time they start investing in signs, T-shirts, hats, <laughs> uh, put up a gift shop, make a train stop right there where he was spotted, really capitalize on the opportunity. Well, look, when I go, Jess, I'll make sure I get a ticket for you and whomever else want to join me and my girlfriend, and maybe we'll go out on the adventure in search of the next Bigfoot. Yeah, we'll, we'll show up in matching t-shirts back to rising. But listen, I think this is a, a time when people want a response from the park service. People are yeah. going to want to know, like, are you monitoring that area? Why is the train passing through this place and people are seeing this thing? Is it a place where there's residential areas nearby and this could be a prank and it could be a person? Are we going to check if the video is real? I think everyone's like, who responds to stuff like yeah. this? Is somebody yeah. going to get on this or is it just going to be rumors on the internet forever and us reposting the video wondering? I think, you know, people want a response. Yeah, I think they do. And like, I'll say to the people out there who are just wondering, you know, maybe I'm too old to think this is real. There's nothing wrong with unleashing that inner child. I think to the point that Jess made, the world is in chaos right now where we're always trying to figure out what is the next thing we have to worry about. Many people are struggling to take care of medical costs. We talked about premiums going up. We have international conflicts. People are struggling to make more money. And here we have a fun, lively story where we can relax a little bit, get away from the craziness, and just imagine, what if? And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, Jess. 
I think some people might have had Bigfoot already on their 2020 bingo card. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's good for people, uh, you know, to maybe relish in the humble side of them that like we really don't understand the universe. There's always that recurring meme, the recurring reminder. Like we're just living on a floating rock through space, guys. It's an important philosophical perspective. I think it helps us recognize our humanity when we grapple with the unknown. And I think there's actually a lot of species out there that we've yet to discover. Is it likely that we haven't discovered one this big? Probably not when we consider satellite imaging and whatnot. Yeah. But I think everyone's curious as to why NASA stopped exploring the ocean and went to space instead. I don't think they got bored. I think maybe they found something down there they didn't want to bother. I think it's good we ask questions like these. I think so too. Again, let that inner child run wild, question everything and have fun while doing it. But that does it for us this week on Rising. Uh, Jess, it's been great being here with you. Thanks so much. I've had a lot of fun with the back and forth. Yeah, Bigfoot's real. Bigfoot's real. <laughs> All right, everybody. Remember to like, share, and subscribe this stream. And if you want to listen on the go, we are now available wherever you get your podcast. Bye, y'all. Take care, guys.